Welcome to this first episode of my new podcast, Take My Advice. I'm Ollie Henderson and I've started this podcast mainly because I just wanted to speak to some fascinating people about subjects in which I'm interested. They range from the future of work and how that intersects with our personal lives, to marketing, management, entrepreneurship and sport. In this episode, I speak to one of my favourite business authors and podcasters, Christopher Lockhead. Christopher wrote the best-selling book, Play Bigger, with our Ramadan Dave Peterson and Kevin Maney, and it's a how-to guide on category design, which I'll link to in the show notes. With Heather Clancy, he also wrote Niche Down, which focuses on how entrepreneurs should identify and own their own niche, whatever size business you're running. He also presents two fantastic podcasts. Follow Your Different is one of the top business podcasts in the world, repeatedly in the top five. And Lockhead on Marketing is a must-listen for marketing advice from one of the best around. He's also a straight shooter as well as a genuinely nice guy. Before we start, if you enjoy this show or any other future episodes, please make sure you subscribe. Also, check out and subscribe to my newsletter, Future Work Life. You'll be joining thousands of others based around the globe who are interested in my take on how we react to our fast-evolving world. You can find it on Substack, which I'll link to in the show notes, along with other topics Christopher and I discuss, or you can sign up on futureworklife.com. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Christopher Lockhead. Enjoy. Christopher, thank you so much for being my first guest on my new podcast, Take My Advice. Welcome to the show. Stoked to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, there's loads of different directions we could go with this conversation, so I thought the easiest place to start would be to ask you a pretty broad question about how you've ended up here. Um, well, I got thrown out of school at 18 for being stupid. I found out at 21 that um, I'm dyslexic and I have four or five uh, now diagnosed what we today we call learning differences. Uh, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? It's, it's, it's encouraged. Okay. So I, you know, I have dyscalculia and dyslexia and executive function disorder and this and that and the other. I just put them all together and call it dysfuclio. Um, so had I known that, I think my education would have been different. But at 18 years old, like a lot of, um, like a lot of people, you know, I was staring down a, a life of uh, manual labor and uh, very little opportunity. And so um, with no money, no education, no relationships, obviously no experience, um, you know, I come from a very modest, uh, to put it mildly, uh, background, uh, working class, lower working class background. Um, I decided to start a business. And so for me, like a lot of entrepreneurs, um, entrepreneurship was not a way up in the world. It was a way out. And so I started at 18, and um, by the time I was 28, um, I was the head of marketing for a Silicon Valley-based publicly traded software company. I had um, My first business did well and then did really not well, so I I failed spectacularly. Um, Ended up getting a job at another startup, blah, blah, yada, yada, and then ultimately started another company, which I sold to a U.S. software company and moved to Silicon Valley uh, when I was 27 going on 28. Um, and then from then to 38, I did two more tours of duty as, um, as a CMO, both, um, one in a startup, which, which we took public and then one in a large, large existing software company, which we sold to Hewlett Packard, uh, for $5 billion. 
in 2016. And, uh, and at that point, I was 38 or something about eights in my life. I don't know. And, um, and I retired from um, CMOing. I hung up my gloves. And I started consulting and advising and investing. Uh, I also did a lot of skiing. I moved to Tahoe and uh, nice. um, skied 120 days a year and, and, and so forth. And then ulti- ultimately started a boutique um, advisory firm. And, uh, and it was from that firm that uh, my first book came. And um, I retired from sort of full-time consulting advising stuff when uh, Play Bigger came out. Um, and that was four and a half years ago now. And uh, while I do a little bit of consulting and investing and advising today, it's not my primary focus. My primary focus today is uh, writing and podcasting. Yeah, and Play Bigger is how I first came across you. It was for many of the people that I know, a how-to guide for category design. Is that a fair description? That's what we hoped it would be. So if that's what you think it is, um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm stoked to hear that, Ollie. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, would you mind explaining what category design is, just for those who might not be as familiar with it? Yeah, of course. Um, so I think an important thing to sort of start on is um, I reject um, almost everything we've been taught about marketing because it's bullshit and it's not what the legends did. And so uh, it, let's unpack marketing. When most people say marketing, the context, the implication of what they're saying is, we are going to um, launch a product or service into an existing market category that has demand, and we are going to compete for that demand. And our strategy for winning is we are going to have a better product or service. And when people, when people compare our product or service to the bad guy's product or service, we will win. And the job of marketing, therefore, is to capture demand in an existing market category predicated on a strategy called we're better than them because um, when the world sees our carbodingulator, they're going to understand that it's better than, than the other carbodingulators and ta-da, will be successful. Well, the reason I reject all of that, Ollie, is because when you do the work um, and you study the greats, what you realize is um, they did uh, nothing of the sort. (laughs) And so marketing in a traditional sense, um, and I would argue business strategy in a traditional sense, um, is largely bullshit. Yeah, and I think that comes through. I was dipping into niche down earlier, which we can go on to in in a little while, but I was reminded of that point you made about how so much focus is put on product design and company design, very little on category design. And, you know, this is perhaps indicative of something which probably come from Silicon Valley, and it's come out of that movement from Eric Ries and Steve Blank, which, of course, you know, is provide really useful frameworks for us to use to to build successful companies so it's refreshing to hear this idea that actually that create demand you know tell tell a story about a future which people believe but they might not have necessarily thought of in that way before how do you arrive at that point and be confident that you've got a good idea how can you be sure that that niche is the right one and is there a risk sometimes that if you don't get it right you end up being pigeonholed 
uh, you can't know, and you might get pigeonholed. Those yeah. things could happen. Um, and we can talk about how to de-risk those things. And, and as uh, my brother from another mother and co-author of Play Bigger, Kevin Maney, says, category design is a new lens on business. So if I could, maybe just introduce the lens, and then we can talk about how you use the lens, right? So the idea is, as opposed to what we just talked about, what category designers do is they create demand, not compete for it. They do not play a comparison game. They want everything else to be compared to them. Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx and the creator of the shapewear category, um, called her new product an invention. Now, look, it would have been very easy for her not to call the category shapewear to call it a girdle. Girdles have been around for well over a century. She could have called it a girl 2.0, right? Or, or the other one that drives me nuts right now, Ollie, is girdle plus. By the <laughs> yeah. way, when you see plus at the end of a product name, what you're being told is the CEO and CMO of that company are idea bankrupt. But I digress. So she wanted to distinguish herself. She wanted to be different. She wanted all others to be compared to her, not her to be compared to others. And of course, um, she, there is demand for girdles, okay? But what she wanted to do was intersect that demand and shift it. Like imagine putting a dam in a, in a, in a stream or a river. You say, well, you thought you were going here, but what you actually want to do is go over here. Um, in the book, of course, we talk about these things called Frodo's, from twos. You move the world from the way it is to the way you want it to be. And so when she says it's shapewear and she says it's different, she calls it an invention, an innovation. She distinguishes it from what came before. And as a result, People don't compare it to the past. They view it as a breakthrough, which is how she views it and cer certainly how she wants the world to view it. And um, she's the richest self-made billionaire uh, in American, uh, female entrepreneur in American history as a result. And when you start to look at what the legendary innovators did, that's what they do. They break and take new ground. They don't compete for old ground. They create demand where there wasn't before, or they intersect the current demand and they educate the market, the category, with a new and different point of view about the problem and therefore the solution. That's what a category designer does. And so what happens is you then stand alone. You then become known for a niche that you own. And if you, if you take a big step back, Ollie, you'll realize in business, in the arts, in science, uh, in, in societal change, this is exactly what happens. And so entrepreneurs, marketers, CEOs, CMOs, product inventors fall into this horrible trap of competing as opposed to distinguishing themselves and creating. And that's fundamentally what category design is about. Now, to get to your idea, how do you determine whether it's a new idea? Um, there's a number of things you can do. One of the things I like to do is I talk to entrepreneurs all the time. They present me their ideas. Um, and I like to think about it this way. 
fast forward five years from now, is this thing that they're sharing with me likely to become a new category? Is it, is it likely that these things exist in the future? Can you see a world where this happens? Sometimes we can't. You know, in the very beginning, I forget the number of no's, but, you know, Airbnb got a, a tremendous amount of no's because the reality is when a couple of young guys from San Francisco show up and meet with a bunch of older rich guys in Silicon Valley and they say, hey, we're going to build a business predicated on people renting their couches. Their old rich guys go, A, who would want to rent their couch? And B, who the fuck would want to stay on the couch? It's, it's, it sounds like an absolutely terrible idea, right? And it's fraught with legal issues. And, and what about robbery? And what about horrible things happening? And like, it just, on its face, it sounds stupid. It yeah. sounds unlikely, implausible, right? And so you have to envision a world where people look at their home differently as an asset that can be monetized when they're not around or even when they are around. I, one of my best friends lives down the street from me. He has a section of his home that he rents out. This anyway, is the idea that Mike, Mike Maples Jr. talks about non-consensus, but right, doesn't he? And he puts it, he puts it beautifully. Yeah. And so you have to be non-consensus and right. And Airbnb is an example. Spanx is an example. And, and you'll, you'll, if you start thinking this way, that is to say using the category lens, you'll start to see, you'll start to see it everywhere. Um, and new think- categories create new categories. And, and you'll start to, I don't know if you remember that movie, um, The Sixth Sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where uh, Bruce Willis says, I see dead people. You know, he can see yeah. things that other people can't see. And category, uh, the category lens is like that. You start to see patterns that make sense because you see businesses and you see social ideas and you see um, uh, scientific breakthroughs that are gaining traction because they distinguish themselves around a problem and a solution in a way that's super compelling and, and they move the world from the way it is to the way um, they want it to be. Do you think category kings as you described in the book were conscious that they were category kings take steve jobs for example as a classic example do you think he was aware of what that what he was doing was category design or do you just think there was something inherent in him which just understood this of breaking new ground and showing people things that they wanted when they weren't even aware they wanted them yeah so i didn't know steve but i have close friends who knew and worked with him um and um First of all, he was absolutely a category designer, uh, one of the greatest of all time, no question about it. And he didn't know that's what he was doing. He was in an, what you might call an intuitive category design, designer. It was implicit in him. He understood it. Now, he used the words when he introduced um, – he, he wouldn't have called himself a category designer, but he understood category. And I'll give you a specific example. When he introduced the iPad, uh, he put up a slide that had the iPhone on one side and the MacBook on the other. And he said, we believe there's room for a new category of device. If you go and look at some of his presentations, some of his product reveals, if you go and read some of the press uh, press releases at the launch of some of these seminal products, he explicitly says this. And what he's doing when he says that is he's saying that for the, the tech business, we use this phrase use case right? Which is it was a fancy way of saying problem uh, or opportunity, if you like. But he said the, the, the iPhone 
is great for one set of use cases. The MacBook is great for a set of others. But as it relates to, at the time, um, what he called content consumption and communication, which was sort of the broad category that he was um, looking at for the iPad, um, he said, there's, there's got to be a, there's got to be a different way. And so he used the word category. I think he understood these things. It was explicit in that sense. Um, but he didn't use the phrase category design. My initial perception of play bigger was that it was a category design guide for tech businesses in particular, perhaps because of the background of the guy who wrote it. And if you're in that industry, there are some amazing insights in there. Just as an aside, I really like the anecdote about your co-author Dave Peterson's approach to pitch presentations and the three questions he asks anyone sitting in front of him looking for funding. So his first question is, explain to me like a five-year-old what problem you're solving. Second, if it solves that problem, what category are you in? And the final question is, if you win 85% of that category, what's the size of that category? I just love the way you can condense what's otherwise often a very detailed and dense conversation into three simple questions but to come back to my point about tech businesses and in particular the world of venture capital was the category design you evangelized in play bigger written from a perspective that relies upon significant investment in both time and more importantly money to cut through and establish the position as category king or queen no is the short answer uh money helps um although there are many startups in Silicon Valley who die financial uh, indigestion. They, they have too much money. And uh, the legends of venture capital in Silicon Valley will tell you you can overfund a company. Um, and most of the new categories are created by companies with uh, uh, very little funding. I'll tell you about my favorite new category right now. Electronic bikes, e-bikes. Yeah. I love them. And I, I, I buy new ones all the time. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to buy a new one this week, an right. e-mountain bike. Uh, and the first uh, couple e-bikes I bought were from ones from a company called Rad Bikes and ones from a company called Juiced Bikes. Um, and um, here's the interesting thing. There's a cluster of these companies in San Diego, California. And I don't know exactly how many, but um, a bunch of them were funded on Kickstarter. Yeah. And so what you see in new categories often is they're created by startups. And so here's who's not dominating in e-bikes, Trek, Specialized, and the other uh, big bike companies. Now, they are all have moved into the market. And actually, the next e-bike I'm going to buy is a Specialized Mountain Bike because it's an incredible product. But Rad Bikes and Juiced Bikes and uh, Super 73, and you know, there's a bunch of these emerging companies and brands. I think Rad Bikes may be the emerging category queen. We'll see. I, but the bottom line is, these are companies, some of which were funded on Kickstarter with relatively small amounts of money. Um, and uh, remember, the best venture capitalist is a customer. And, um, and, and often, big existing companies are hypnotized by the power of gravity and they cannot see the opportunity. And I'll give you another example. New categories often create new categories. So here was the first thing I noticed when I got my first e-bike. Uh, e I got on the bike and I put on my mountain biking helmet and I looked like a dork because 
the first e-bike I got was so, one of these. Um, it's a scooter style bike. It looks like a moped. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's cool as shit. Has a big light on it, and it and 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 it'll go just on throttle. You don't have to pedal ever if you don't want to. It's unbelievable. Nice. Anyway, you get on this mope, this black cool mopedy thing with a big headlight and big big tires and shit, and you look all badass. And then you put your mountain bike hat on, and I'm no fashionista, but you look like a dork. <laughs> so you need a new helmet. So then you go, okay, you start shopping around for helmets, and you notice that most bike helmets look a lot the same. And then uh, my wife discovered a company called Thousand. And Thousand is a startup helmet company. And um, they're not doing anything revolutionary. However, they have tied themselves to this emerging mega category of electronic mobility. So when you go to Thousand's website, the first thing you see on their homepage is, um, oh, what, what do you want a helmet for? E-bike, scooter, uh, skateboard, et cetera. And, and of course, a traditional bike. And you click on that and it brings you to uh, what they're going to start recommending for you. And the helmets look very distinctive. They're very cool. They're insanely comfortable. So it's an amazing product. And th they do have a distinctive nature to them, but they didn't reimagine the helmet the way Elon Musk is creating a new ca category of space travel, right? So, but category design is a spectrum. And my point is the folks that founded Thousand Helmets were smart enough to understand that these new category of bikes and scooters and other uh, quote unquote mobility products that were emerging required a different kind of helmet because the users of them experienced exactly what I described. And now thousand helmets is on fire and they're growing and, and so forth and so on. Yep. And so here's the other interesting thing. Guess who didn't see that? The number one bike helmet in, uh, manufacturer in the world, uh, Bell Giro. Now, yeah. I, I don't know if they're doing it now. Maybe they are. I haven't checked their website. But the point being, these are, er, very, these are startups. These are gals and guys in their, in their kitchens, in their bedrooms, in their garages. You know, we just did an episode of my podcast with Kara uh, Golden. And she's one of the most inspiring entrepreneurs I've ever met. This is a gal who was a tech executive. And she was trying to deal with some health problems and trying to lose some baby weight from her, her baby and so forth. And she was having some challenges with this stuff. And she realized that drinking soda was bad for her. So she took soda out of her diet and she started drinking water. Well, she got sick of drinking water, just plain old water. And so she started cutting pieces of fruit and doing this stuff and trying to snazz up her water. And before you know it, bada bing, bada boom, she's the founder of Hint Water. And she created a whole new category of healthy, fruit-flavored, low-calorie, no-garbage um, water. Because she started drinking vitamin water, she realized, well, vitamin water is fucking full of uh, sugar, just the yeah. same way a Coke is. And she's like, yeah. I, you know, so she said, even though there were these new water products, there wasn't a healthy one that tasted great that was fruit flavored. And so she went out in her kitchen and she did that. And now she's not in the tech business. She's the founder CEO of Hint. They're on fire. She's been named one of the top entrepreneurs in the country. And, and away you go. And so, again, you have an example of uh, a woman who started a business with $50,000 and today runs one of the fastest growing companies in the United States and is the category queen of a category that she designed. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating, isn't it? Because it, it, it's difficult to imagine Coca-Cola 
going into a market where the whole selling point is not having sugar in the drinks. It's difficult to sell that, isn't it? As Coca-Cola, presumably they've tried, but unsuccessfully. Well, and here's what happened. And she tells the story on the podcast. So um, we have a major chain here in the excited states called Target. And she was in Target and doing very, very well. And uh, the bean counters and, you know, the guys wearing uh, blue, blue button-down shirts and khaki pants with pleats in them said they ran some spreadsheets and said, hey, wait a minute, there's a new category taking off. We need to go compete with Hint Water. So they create a product. I forget what it was called or what it's called. They show up at Target. They say, we want to launch this new whatever water um, at Target. Oh, and by the way, you got to get rid of Hint. So she gets a call from Target and says, sorry, Kara, but uh, you're out and Coke's in. And devastating news for a, a, a growing startup. They bring the product in. They sell it. And I forget exactly the time frame, Ollie, but a, per a period of months, um, the product fails. And Hint Water is back in Target. Now, why is that the case? Most people would say if they only have a product headset, they would say, oh, well, she's winning because she has a better product. Now, look, she's got a spectacular product. And I am in no way, shape, or form saying that you shouldn't have legendary products. I love legendary products. These e-bikes are amazing products. These computers that you and I are using, amazing. We're recording on Zoom. We've had Eric Yuan on the podcast multiple times, the founder and CEO of Zoom. He created a legendary product. So go build legendary products and services, please. I'm no, in no way, shape, or form saying you should not do that. You should do that, and you should design a legendary category. But here's what happens when you do category, company, and product design at the same time, what we call the magic triangle. You become known for that niche, that category. You become the bar that all others are measured by. And so what happened with Coke's entry into the market, they had their ass handed to them. Why? Because everybody said, well, it's not Hint, right? When, you're, when your brand name starts to become synonymous with the category you're designing, you win. Yeah. Right? And so little, little old startup run, run by, uh, you know, this incredible woman entrepreneur. Now her husband's joined the company. And, you know, now they're a very serious company. But kicked Coca-Cola's ass upside and down in one of the largest retailers in the country because by the time the Coke people woke up, and decided to compete with a Me Too product that they said was better than Hint, it didn't work because she was the category queen. And here's the, here's the psychology. You want to do an exercise with me? Oh, go, go on, let's do it. Okay. I, I'd like you, Ollie, to think about pink unicorns. Pink unicorns, pink unicorns, pink unicorns. You think about them doing whatever you want them to do, going wherever you want. If you want to ride the pink uniform, unicorn, Pink unicorn, but whatever you do, pink unicorns. Now, don't think about pink unicorns. You can think about anything you want. No pink unicorns, no pink unicorns. Just don't stop thinking about pink unicorns. Stop right now. No pink unicorns. Think about anything you want. No pink unicorns. What are you thinking about? Pink unicorns? <laughs> yes. And so we see this all the time. Yeah. Uh, Pepsi might be the stupidest company in history. They, last year at the Super Bowl, they launched an ad starring Steve Carell, 
who uh, starred in the uh, American version of The Office, uh, which actually I thought was going to suck, but it actually didn't. I was a huge, huge fan yeah, of the original. You're right. Yeah, you're right. Both, actually, both were great, weren't they? They were both great. Yeah, yeah. I still I still prefer the U- UK one a little. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. as Incredible. you guys might say, he's naughty. You know, <laughs> he is, he he's is. naughty in a very <laughs> bizarre <laughs> and fascinating way, right? <laughs> uh, but, but I digress. Um, they hired Steve, Pepsi hired Steve Carell to do this ad campaign, and the scene in the ad is um, a couple sitting down in the diner, and their uh, server comes over and says, "You know." Can I get you anything? Type of you know, type of question, and um, uh, the the actor in the in the ad says, "Yeah, um, um, could I have a Coke?" And the server says, "Well, is Pepsi okay, or is Pepsi all right?" And Steve Carell is in the booth next to them, and he stands up and he says, "Is Pepsi all right? Are flowers all right? Are sunrises all right? Are and he goes on and on and on and." And so forth and so on, right? Well, at the end of the ad, what are we thinking about? Coke. The whole ad is premised on comparing themselves to Coke. It's the pink unicorn exercise we just did. They are literally taking marketing dollars and giving them to Coke because their whole campaign is we taste better than Coke. Well, if we, if they've been saying for decades, generations, we, you know, four out of five people say Pepsi tastes better than Coke. All they're doing is validating that Coke is the category queen. Yeah. People want the original. Dumbest marketing in history, but I digress. And so to get back to your question, um, whether it's Hintwater or whether these new e-bike companies or the Thousand Helmet Company, these are all startups on, on very tight budgets who design categories that they now dominate and are building into extraordinary businesses on the strength of the demand that they helped create. Great. I, I want to go on in a moment to, to some of the differences between niche down and play bigger, but just a quick one on the helmet thing. Does a category rely on a snappy name? The great examples often have it's either one word or two words or three words which encapsulate what that category is all about. But you described the case there where a smart bunch of people realized that e-bikes was an emerging category. And they say, well, look, you know, we, we create accessories. Let's attach ourselves to e-bikes. Are they talking about themselves as the e-bike accessory company or e-bike helmets? Or does it not really matter? Is, is the name irrelevant? Is it secondary to the, the strength of the category? Um, I think they're both really important. Um, and you'll start to notice a couple things with categories. Um, they're, they, they come, they, or category names, they come in certain buckets of thinking. So um, you'll notice it, when you start playing with the category lens that a lot of new categories are named by what they're not. Because if you show up and you, you use a word that people don't know or people are unfamiliar with or is a w- word that it, they wouldn't expect or f- two words put together or three words put together that they wouldn't expect in the context in which, um, you know, your product or service lives, um, it can be confusing. So, for example, Ollie, um, 
Do you remember what Henry Ford called his new category when he first launched? The motorized horse, something along that, the motorized horse carriage or something along those lines, wasn't it? Yeah, he called it the horseless carriage. Yes, horseless, of course. Now, yeah. now today we communicate. What do you call the thing in your pocket that you and I use to communicate with and surf the web and do stuff? What do you call that thing well, today? It's a well, we call it the mobile phone or the cell a phone. A mobile phone. Yeah, yeah. Some people call it a smartphone. Yeah. And if you um, remember, um, in the beginning, they were called wireless phones, much, much like horseless carriage. Yeah. So in a case where you're trying to um, essentially intersect with something that people know, um, and you're trying to move them from buying and using that thing to considering buying and using a new thing, Often it's wise to but by what it's not, wireless, horseless, and you'll start to see that in, in lots of places. So that's one way you can go, um, describing what it's not. Over time, it, it morphs. Today we call it a mobile phone. Most people don't call it a wireless phone anymore. And uh, of all the things that these things do, phone is actually the shittiest or one of the shittiest. They're not great phones, really. And so... I, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball, but you can see a future 10 years from now where the word phone goes out of the category name, right? And um, so, so that's sort of one line of thinking, what yeah. it's not. Another is very uh, um, descriptive, very clear and very descriptive. Uh, let me show you this thing here. Uh, okay, so this is the newest category thing I have seen in my life in the last week. My friend Ray Wong at uh, Constellation Research just did his big annual uh, conference. He's the number one tech analyst in the world. They did their big enterprise conference, conference, and I spoke at it. You know, did over over digital, and they sent they sent all the speakers a gift pack full full fun shit, right? And they sent me this thing, which is it was paid for by Salesforce. And it's made by a company called Mophi. And if you, if you remember, um, Mophi makes uh, chargers and, and, and um, mm. protector, protectors for, for your phone. And so your, your phone goes in this thing. It looks like a little coffin or whatever, a little box, and it goes in this thing, right? Mm. And it charges your phone. But guess what? We're living in a COVID world. So they call this thing, I'll show you the box. They call it the UV sanitizer with wireless wow. charging wow okay so what this thing is is you come home at the end of the day uh, or to your office or whatever and instead of plugging your phone in the way we normally do to charge it you put it in this little coffiny thing that's about the size of a yeah. book brilliant and it uses uvc antibacterial bacterial technology that's what they call it to sanitize your phone. And it says quickly kill 99.9% .9 of the most common surface bacteria on the devices you touch daily. Incredible. Welcome to the Mophie for C the C19 era, right? Brilliant. Well, brilliant, right? Now, is yeah. this thing gonna be successful new category? I, I don't know. Is it a great idea? It is. My guess is it might be really successful. 
And um, I bet you right now they're working real hard to prove that it, it kills COVID. Um, anyway, there you go. So yeah, nice. the name in this case is highly descriptive. UV sanitizer, that's what it is. This is a UV sanitizer with wireless charging. Now it's a mouthful. It's not particularly sexy. The product's kind of sexy. It's kind of cool. Yeah, that's good. And if you're a germaphobe <coughs> or, or um, you know, you're worried about COVID, maybe you need this, right? Um, so very descriptive, uh, and that often works very well. Yeah. And then the third category is, is, is what, in branding terms, we call a quote-unquote empty vessel. It's a word that communicates something, a feeling, an idea, but it's not um, highly descriptive. And a great example of that we've seen in, in computing over the last 20 years and really exploding over the last 10 years is this thing today we call the cloud, right? That's a new category of computing. And in the beginning, it took a lot of explanation, but, but today we all understand when somebody says, oh, it's a cloud application, or I'll send you that file from, from the cloud, or I'll download it from the cloud, da 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 we have a general idea of what that means. And so that's more of an empty vessel. They take a word that we know, but of course didn't mean what it means in the technology world, and we imbue it with new meaning. And over time, we build uh, understanding and value in that category name. And so those are generally the three kinds of places people start. What it's not, highly super descriptive, or, or, or a word or a phrase that maybe connotes or, or speaks to what it might be, but, but really requires explanation. You're trying to imbue a word or words w with meaning that it didn't have before for, for one reason or another. Hmm. So I, I wanted to move on to kind of a topic which I talk about with all the guests on this show, but I also write about, and it's this changing world of work and how that relates to our personal lives. And clearly, the last six months in particular have presented fundamental changes. Now I've speaking to loads of people at the moment who are changing the way they consider work and decoupling is a better way of putting it, decoupling work from employment. So you're seeing way more people who are offering freelancing services and businesses are cutting back on fixed overheads. Now I, I, I mention it because in the context of the changing world of work, do you see niching down as an opportunity for people? And, it, and if I were to take that approach, how do I recognize which of my passions to combine with skills in my marketability? I love the question. Um, and actually, I just dealt with this. Um, do you know Dave, Dave Gerhardt by chance, DG? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's got a spectacular podcast, and he's, he's a rock star startup uh, CMO here in the excited states. And, um, and he's also got a wonderful Facebook group for marketers, B2B marketers. So um, I was trolling around in his, his B2B marketer Facebook group, you know, uh, in the last week or so. And somebody had posted a question that was something to the effect of, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you have a successful career in marketing past 50? Because in marketing, there's a lot of ageism. In tech, there's a ton of ageism. Yeah, definitely. and uh, you know a lot of people are 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 uh, in a challenging spot um, when they get to their fifties. If you're you know trying to be in marketing or trying to be in tech, and so that that was the question. And um, here's the answer: become known for a niche that you own. And 
here's the specifics around it, Ollie. Let's say you're a marketer and let's say you're 45. Well, if you're just known as a, as a generalist, you're just a good marketer. Maybe you're a mid-level marketing person working at some company, or maybe you're a senior one, whatever, wherever you are in your career. Uh, I don't care where you are in the org chart. Um, but you're just generally known as a good all-round marketer. You know, when, if you need help on marketing, well, Ollie's the guy we should talk to. Well, here's the reality. Um, you're not known for shit if you're just a marketer. Now, let's say that um, in the domain of marketing, you work in campaigns. You're a campaign manager or director. Okay, great. That's Now we're beginning to niche down a little bit. Um, my suggestion to you is define what kind of campaigns. So the example I used in this answer was change, immediately change your LinkedIn profile and your business card. And if you have a personal website, and if you don't have a personal website, fucking get one. Because what happens after people Google your name matters. And so even if you are a mid-level marketing person working in a ginormous company, you should have not just a LinkedIn profile, but a professional website for your career. Um, so let's say you're that person. You're a campaign director. Well, niche down even further. And maybe, like an idea, call yourself a revenue campaign expert. I specialize in uh, designing and executing marketing campaigns that drive revenue. So you're a revenue campaign expert. And that's what it says on your LinkedIn profile. Now, here's what you start doing. You start blogging about that. You start posting articles about that. Somebody else writes something in that domain. You, you post an article about it. And maybe you comment on it. Uh, why this is a smart article, or you pull a piece of the article out that validates or, or, or multiplies your point of view about what's a legendary revenue campaign and what's not. Uh, you start writing things called the, the 10 steps to legendary revenue campaigns. And this is another sort of aha for people. Give away your IP. Give it all away. In my life, I don't hold anything back. There's nothing that we took out of play bigger for proprietary reasons. There's nothing we took out of niche down for proprietary reasons. There's nothing on my podcasts that I have learned that I think could be helpful to entrepreneurs, executives, and marketers that I don't talk about or, or plan to talk about. The only reason some things are not in, in those books yeah. is you can't fit everything in a book. But give away your IP. Tell mm -hmm. people. Um, talk about how revenue campaigns is a great career for other marketers. Uh, talk about how if you're starting your career in marketing, um, how to become a revenue campaign expert, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, okay? And what will happen over a period of time, you have to play the long game here. It's not going to happen in a week. You're not going to go viral like the, the TikTok guy with the ocean spray juice. It's not how this happens, okay? That, that's a moonshot. It's a pure accident. It's fun when it happens, but the, it doesn't happen to the vast majority of people but you start building and building and building. You post things, you tweet things. You're not one of these idiots spewing out garbage all day long. Okay, so here's what happens. Six months later, eight months later, a year later, you get an email, you get a phone call, you get a tweet, you get a LinkedIn message. It says, hey, Ollie, 
we're looking for a revenue campaign expert and uh, we'd love to talk to you about that. When people in the market category start parroting back your language to you, you begin, you begun winning. And that's ultimately how you become known for a niche that you own. And if you look at anybody's career, that's how they're successful. We all know who Bob Marley is because he's the category designer of reggae. We don't know who the 17th greatest reggae band is. We have no idea. Okay. My favorite band is the Ramones. Well, the Ramones created the category of punk rock. See, at the time, some of the most popular bands in the world were bands like Led Zeppelin or the, prog the progressive rock bands like Yes, uh, uh, some of the heavy bands. And all, all these, all these play Peter Frampton, all these bands had incredible musicianship in them. The guys in the Ramones could, could barely play. They're like, well, we can't play Led Zeppelin, so we got to play our own shit. And what they said to the world was, therefore, you can't compare us to Led Zeppelin. You have to compare us to us. We're a new kind of music called punk rock, as distinct from hard rock. And so we see this everywhere um, in life. And, 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 and this is what we must do for our careers. The success that I've had in my life is I'm the category guy. Category design is my niche down. Now, I do other things too, and I think I'm pretty good at those other things, but I'm not stupid. I know that that's the niche that I am known for, and that's the first, um, the first thing I'll, I'll always hang my hat on and always be known for. You know, it's like actors. They say, I don't want to be typecast. I don't want to be typecast. I don't want to be typecast. You're a dumb moron. That's exactly what you want to be, typecast. And some incredible comedic actors end up winning Oscars for, uh, uh, you know, serious dramatic roles over time, right? Tom Hanks comes to mind, right? But in the beginning, he was a comedic actor. So the basis of starting this show was my observation that if you were to look at LinkedIn or Instagram or Twitter, you get people handing out advice left, right and center. And if you believe what they say, you'd assume they've got it all figured out. But I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we'd admit we're learning as we go. And I, I'm interested in this idea that the more I give advice, the more I realize it's quite difficult to stick to some of that advice myself. The first question would be, are there certain pieces of advice which you would often offer to other people, but perhaps you sometimes struggle to stick to yourself? Um, I generally don't offer advice about things that I'm not competent in. So, you know, if, if, you, if you want to hire a personal trainer, um, hiring a fat one is probably not what you're going to do, right? So, you know, I'm a martial artist and a boxer. M my boxing coach, Coach Nick Townsend, is a champion boxer, right? So you want to get advice from people uh, who are legendarily accomplished in the domain in which you're getting the advice. And so, um, look, do I do I – wander out of uh, entrepreneurship, marketing, category design, and, and so forth from time to time? Yes, I do. Uh, 
we're having an election right now in the United States. I'm, I'm trying to encourage people to vote. Am I an expert in voting? No. Uh, right now, um, one, one of the things I've decided that I'm going to um, uh, g get busy about is, is racism in the United States. And um, I'm having debates and arguments with people, uh, m mostly white people, um, that, you know, I'm not an expert on racism, but I also believe, Ollie, that there's a significant problem with race in the United States of America. And that that problem will not be transformed without, and I'm going to be explicit here, rich, white, powerful, influential men getting on board. Okay, black people can't do it themselves. Uh, in the Me Too movement, um, w women can't change men's behavior themselves. They need help from men. And so I have decided that I'm going to take this on because I don't think it's fair for me to sit on the sidelines and let my black sisters and brothers fight this fight alone. And I'm pissing a lot of people off right now. I'm calling a lot of people racist, and they don't like it when I call them racist. Uh, it's, it's been a shit show. But um, I think race has been pushed back in our country by a decade in the last four years. And if guys like me don't take a stand and don't drive for change, we're not going to get the, the level of the scale of change that we th that I think we need. Uh, now, am I an expert on that? No, but I've decided to wade into those waters. But all that said, for the most part, when I give advice, it's generally on things that I'm an expert in or, or know a bunch about. And I'm also, I try to be smart enough to know what I'm not an expert about. So for example, I spent a lot of time in the Middle East I have a lot of Middle Eastern friends. I love it there. I have opinions about the Middle East. I have opinions about peace in the Middle East. I have opinions about the conflict in the Middle East. However, I'm not an expert on how to fucking solve peace in the Middle East, even though I have opinions, right? I, I try to read and learn from experts. Uh, and so that's, that's the difference. So generally, I try not to give a whole lot of advice about shit that I don't know about or shit that I can't do. <laughs> Which is good advice in itself, I think. So we've come to the end of our, our time. Thank you again for joining me. Um, I really enjoyed Play Bigger. I also really love Niche Down. I use it as a how-to guide. I've, I've been through so many category names, I can't tell you. I've still not worked out the right one, but uh, perhaps I'll share some with you. Some with you. you can tell me which, which sound I'd, I'd be happy to, so, happy to. Fire me an email and we can jam a little bit. Absolutely. Great. Christopher, pleasure to speak to you. Thanks very much. And you can find Christopher's show on all good podcasting networks to follow you different. And Lockhead on Marketing, which is also great. David Sachs' episode a few weeks ago, one of my favorites in a while, all about movement marketing. I thought we were going to talk about that, actually, but we've run out of time. So uh, I'll check that out. Christopher, thanks very much. Thank you, brother. So that was my conversation with Christopher Lockhead, which I thoroughly enjoyed, and I hope you did too. Thanks again to Christopher for his time, and thank you to you for listening. Please subscribe if you liked what you heard, and check out the next episode of Take My Advice, which is available now, and it features three-time Olympian and author Kath Bishop discussing her new book, The Long Win. We cover a range of topics, including sport, business, education, and reframing our understanding of how we judge success. 
Remember to sign up to my newsletter, Future Work Life, for weekly insights on the future of work. I'm Ollie Henderson, and I'll see you again here soon.